It's Thanksgiving week, and given that it is 2020, it is hard to think of things to be thankful for. But I'll tell you two things we at Murder in the Rain are thankful for, our newest Patreon supporters. Thank you so much to Lisa from Longview, Washington, and Lexi from Somewhere Mysterious. If you would like to hear your name on the show, please look up our Patreon at patreon.com slash murderintherain, and we'll do just that. Happy holidays. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. One thing that seems to go hand-in-hand with adolescence is bullying. By definition, bullying is an abuse of social interaction between peers. It comes in multiple forms, but it typically involves an imbalance of power. One is perceived as weak or of lower social stature, while the other is considered stronger or more authoritative and is usually higher up on the social chain. It's a very sad and unfortunate fact that nearly all kids are affected by bullying, whether it's participating in it, being the target of it, or witnessing it happen. Over 20% of young adults have noted that they have been targeted by bullying. As you can imagine, bullying happens in a number of fashions. There's physical bullying. This is the obvious one to spot. This is when a person physically dominates and harms another individual. This could be just to scare them or maybe force them to do something. Verbal bullying is a common form where one person is targeted by another and they're made fun of. This is typically to purposefully hurt their feelings or embarrass them in front of an audience. Emotional or psychological bullying is hard to spot. This type of bullying is intended to isolate a person and cause them to feel alone and depressed. Perhaps it's caused by spreading a rumor about someone or convincing others to shun them. Lastly, the bullying that has been seeing the most growth in recent years is cyberbullying. This is where the culprits take to text or social media platforms to embarrass and humiliate another person, and they can hide behind a facade while they do so. 40% of kids claim that they have been the victim of cyberbullying. With so many kids invested into their online world, often being a place where parents have little to no visibility into, this is a horrifying recipe for depression and isolation. This world of online torment has bred a trend of teenage suicide. There are over 58 cases of young adult suicide directly correlated to bullying. In recent years, documentaries and books have pulled this into the spotlight, hoping that if we talk about it, we can come together as a society to fix the problem. In 2016, the documentary Audrey and Daisy hit Netflix. It was a beautifully crafted and heartbreaking masterpiece about the terrifying world of online bullying and teenage rape and suicide. The documentary tells the story of two young girls greatly impacted by online bullying after experiencing rape. Audrey Pott had died by suicide in 2012 after she had been raped by three 16-year-old boys who she knew since middle school. The kids were at a party and Audrey had been drinking alcohol and passed out. She awoke to find that she had drawings all over her body and through text messaging with her friends found out that she had been raped. A few days later, the boys posted nude photos of Audrey all over the internet. She was 15 years old. Audrey received days of severe bullying online and in text and chose to kill herself by hanging. Her mother discovered her in their bathroom. The boys were initially unidentified due to being children, but were later identified as Andrew Barna, previously Bronson Barna, Nicholas Gafori, formerly Saha Gafori, and Vince Rostatano. 
All three were convicted in juvenile hall for sexual assault. One boy received 45 consecutive days, and the other two got 30 days to be served on weekends. Daisy Coleman, a 14-year-old, was raped by a 19-year-old man named Matthew Barnett in 2012. While Matthew raped Daisy, another boy filmed it. There was alcohol involved, and after the rape, the boys left her on the snowy, freezing ground half-naked outside her house to be discovered by her family. She persevered. She took these men on, but her family was targeted. Not only was she bullied and continually victimized online, her mother received death threats and was fired from her job. The entire town turned on the Coleman family. Their house was even burned down. Luckily, no one had been in it. To make matters worse, Matthew, who was the grandson of a former Republican representative, was able to get his charges of rape reduced to endangerment of a minor due to insufficient evidence. He got four months in jail, two years probation, and paid Daisy just over $1,000 for her lifetime of trauma. Daisy went on to found the nonprofit organization Safe Bay. They aim to prevent sexual assault in middle school and high schools. Despite all of the good that she was able to make happen after channeling strength from her own horrible event, she struggled with severe anxiety and panic attacks. We lost Daisy in August of 2020. Her pain was continual after what happened to her. Her mother, who was her best friend, grew concerned after not hearing from her as expected. She called police to request a welfare check on her daughter, and when they arrived at her house, they found her body. At 23 years old, she died by suicide after a self-inflicted gunshot wound. These cases drew attention to a culture many were unaware of. Today's case did the same. It's not about suicide due to bullying, and it's not about cyberbullying. This is an old-fashioned, in-person, physical, emotional, and verbal bullying case. I'd like to tell you a story that is pretty unique. Today, you'll learn about the astounding case of Rena Verk a Canadian teen who was murdered by a group of her peers. Let's head up north of Washington State to the beautiful island of Vancouver, British Columbia. Saanich is a large district on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, and it's nestled just to the north of the more recognizable destination to us Americans, Victoria. Saanich is known as a bedroom or commuter community, meaning most of the people who live there work somewhere else. It's the eighth most populous district in the province with just over 100,000 residents. To the west of Saanich and just over the Craigflower Bridge is the small town of View Royal. View Royal is made up of eight neighborhoods. The two areas share a large stretch of shoreline along a waterway known as the Gorge. While as a whole, Saanich is recognized as a safe place to live, 76% safer than other districts in Canada to be exact, it isn't immune to tragedy. One of the darkest stories I remember from the 90s came from this district, and that's the story of what happened to 14-year-old Rena Verk. Rena was different. She was the eldest daughter of South Indian immigrants Manjeet and Suman. Manjeet, a Sikh, moved to BC after a family member sent him images of the area and he came out for a visit. He couldn't believe that the beauty of the locations he saw in the pictures was real, so he soon settled down, leaving his life in India behind. He then met the young Suman, who was Hindu and converted to Jehovah's Witness. Despite disapproval from their families who expected arranged marriages, they married for love. Manjeet took Suman's religion, and as they grew their family, they were even more devoted to their religion. 
Rena, the first of three children, was born on March 10, 1983. She was a happy child who was doted on by her parents. Even her father, who was expected to fall into a less hands-on role in their culture, was obsessed with her to the point that his friends picked on him. As Rena grew older, her differences from other children started to make themselves known. Obviously, she had brown skin, but there are a lot of kids in the area who have brown skin, but there aren't so many South Indian kids who are also Jehovah's Witnesses. For anyone who isn't familiar with that religion, Jehovah's Witnesses are Christians whose goal is to honor Jehovah, the God of the Bible and creator of all things. They live their lives to imitate Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses do not celebrate holidays, birthdays, they're apolitical, meaning they don't take part in government even to vote, and they don't eat foods that contain blood, and they don't receive blood transfusions. They don't donate blood either. So knowing that, you can imagine how a child can begin to feel quite isolated from other kids their age in public school. As Rena aged, she started to put on a little bit of weight. Despite being friendly and outgoing, kids at school began to pick on her. By age 12, Rena is less happy-go-lucky than she was as a young child and becoming a more sullen, soon-to-be teenager. As she goes through puberty, it isn't just her weight that draws attention, it's her thick eyebrows. She's also afflicted with eczema. As she becomes a teenager, the condition grows worse. Other kids are enjoying the swimming pool and beaches in the summer, but Rena avoids anything that will draw attention to her changing body. Soon she stops going to church. She's sick of the lack of celebration. She sees how other kids at school get to feel special on their birthday, and she's desperate for that. A rift begins to form between her and her mother. Suman doesn't understand why Rena is leaving her homework undone and skipping church and skipping school. What her parents don't know is that at school, Rena has gained hurtful new nicknames. She started to grow hair on her chin and jaw, and other kids begin to call her the bearded lady and the beast. Her parents eventually find out about the bullying, and they talk to the school. They ultimately choose to move her to a new school to try to solve the situation. Here, she isn't immediately ostracized, but instead finds a safe haven of kids who accept her for who she is. The problem is her family does not approve of these new friends. These are the type of kids who smoke in the park and drink on the weekends, not the good influences that they expect for their child. But to a girl that has no friends, what is she going to do? Refuse the only people that offer her friendship? These new friends are essentially the straw that broke the camel's back for the Virk family. Rena refuses to give her friends up and ends up acting on some very terrible advice from one of the kids. The kid tells her that if she wants to get away from her family, all she has to do is file a complaint that her father abuses her and she'll be able to leave. Rena does this. She confides to someone that her father hits her, and the very same day police come to check on her at home. While they investigate, she's moved into foster care. The hitting allegations eventually turned into sexual abuse allegations. Rena is moved into her grandparents' home, and her dad is truly heartbroken that she would spread these kind of lies. The abuse allegations drive a massive wedge between her and her parents and her parents and her grandparents. In the summer of 1997, Rena's grandparents begin asking more and more questions about the abuse, wanting to understand exactly what happened. Rena doesn't respond to this well. Instead, she attempts suicide by slitting her wrists. She's moved from her grandparents' house to Ledger House, a facility for emotionally disturbed children. 
As she's treated and begins to heal, she's moved into another foster care home since she isn't comfortable living with her grandparents anymore. Soon she'll be expected to testify in court against her father. Eventually, all charges against Manjeet are dropped because there's zero evidence that he abused his child. Rena recants the abuse allegations and admits that it was all made up. But the damage is done, and this isn't the last time the rumor of the abuse will plague this family. Rena and her parents slowly begin to work to repair their relationship. At age 14, she's spending time between her parents' home and Seven Oaks' group home where she has been living. It's there in Seven Oaks that Rena finds the people she desperately wants to be accepted by, the people who she has on a pedestal, the popular girls, the bad girls, the girls who will be the beginning to her end. Rena Verk went missing on November 14th, 1997. That evening, she had been home with her family. She made the decision to sleep over at her parents' house rather than stay at the group home where she had been living. The home encouraged overnight stays with the children's family to try to prepare them for a transition back into home life. She spent the evening playing cards and chatting with her younger brother and sister. After dinner, Rena takes a phone call from a girl named Nicole Cook. Nicole and another girl, Missy Pleisch, are inviting Rena to hang out and go to a party. Much of the conversation is overheard by her mother, Sumon. She overhears her asking the girl on the other line if they really want to hang out or if it's a trick to, quote, kick her butt. They explain that all the crap they have fought about in the past is in the past. They really want her to come out and hang out with them. Rena knows she said some really terrible things about Nicole recently, so it takes some convincing to get her to go out with them. Despite her mother's suggestion that she just stay home and spend time with the family, Rena leaves just after 7.30 p.m. to meet her friends in front of the Walmart. Rena takes her backpack that includes all of her overnight belongings, her diary, pajamas, and perfume. Less than two hours later, Rena calls home distraught. Her brother answered the phone, and through her tears, she told him that she was on her way home. Rena never arrived. Rumors about what happened started to spread immediately through the Shoreline Middle School and Seven Oaks group home. The gist was that Rena had been beat up and murdered. There was talk about a brutal gang of girls who converged on the girl, beat her bloody, and that some of them had broken her arms and legs and threw her into the water so that she couldn't swim away. Other rumors claimed that one of the girls held her underwater until she drowned. Some of the rumors whispered among the teens of View Royal and Saanich were true. After days of being missing, on November 22, 1997, Rena's body was found floating in the shallow tide pool in the Gorge Waterway. Earlier that day, a diver had found evidence of Rena in the water. First, he found a pair of underwear on the floor of the waterway. Then not long after, he found a pair of jeans, still zipped and buttoned. Then, a few hours later, they find a woman's body floating face down with head and arms under the water. She was naked from the waist down, wearing only a bra, tank top, and a single sock. Rena had been there in that water for eight days. Once crime scene photos had been taken, the forensic pathologist, Dr. Laurel Gray, takes the body for autopsy. 
It's obvious that Rena had been in the water for an extended time as her body had become saponified. That's where body fat is chemically changed to adipocere, a waxy substance commonly referred to as grave wax. This is caused by anaerobic environments that lack oxygen paired with heavy moisture. The body decomposition slows since it's inhospitable for bacteria, making the body very well preserved. It was also immediately recognized that the violence this girl endured was intense. The injuries that Rena had sustained didn't look like a typical fight. They were drastic, the kind you might see in a car accident. Rena's entire skull was bruised. She had a cigarette burn on her forehead. Her face was completely swollen. Her throat had been smashed against her spine, indicating that she was stepped on or stomped on. She had an entire shoe print on her brain. Her lower organs had been impacted too. The small intestines had come away from the muscle wall. Her pelvis, stomach, and liver were all significantly bruised. There didn't seem to be a single area of her body that wasn't bruised, scratched, burned, or scraped. Despite the rumors running rampant, she didn't have any broken bones. Her legs and arms were not in fact broken so she couldn't swim away. However, that didn't make her death any less gruesome or sadistic. Dr. Gray concluded that Rena was alive when she went into the water, and it would have taken up to five minutes for her to drown. Water, silt, and pebbles were found in her throat and lungs, but the pathologist said that her brain injuries were so severe that she would have died from them if she hadn't have drowned first. Just before Rena's body was found, police had compiled a lengthy list of teenagers they intended to talk to. While some of the rumors flying around were proven to be untrue, others were incredibly consistent, and police needed to get these kids into an interview room and get them talking specifics. While they worked down a list of 16 teenagers identified as having been present under the bridge at the shoreline, the media was busy making matters worse. Not only was the Virk family coming to terms with their very recent discovery of their daughter's body, they woke up one morning to find Manjeet's name blasted in the news. The media had caught wind of the previous sexual assault allegations that Rena had recanted. Now Manjeet was the bad guy while there was a school bus worth of kids actually at fault. Police were not concerned by the media revisiting old news. They were on to something and working quickly to get to the bottom of what really happened. The day before divers found Rena's body, police arrested and charged Warren Glowatsky with the murder and identified seven other teenage girls who they were going to arrest on charges ranging from assault to murder. So what actually happened to Rena Virk? The police who worked this case did an amazing job coaxing angsty teenagers to divulge what they knew about each other, what the rumors were, who witnessed the beating, and they were able to piece together a rather complete narrative of what would leave not only Canadians but people all over the world with jaws dropped to the floor and following the case intently. As I mentioned in the beginning, Rena received a call on the night of November 14th from a friend of hers, Nicole Cook. Rena and Nicole had a tumultuous relationship. Nicole, who was pretty and blonde and some considered to be model-esque, was a girl that Rena wanted to impress. While they both stayed in the Seven Oaks group home, Rena violated Nicole's trust and read her diary and stole her phone book. And those of us who lived in this time know that's a cherished relic. 
She then began calling Nicole's friends and spreading rumors about her. She called several boys and told them that Nicole not only drew on her eyebrows, she had AIDS. Nicole, who is livid at Rena, plots to get back at her. She loops in her best friend Kelly Eller to help hatch a plan. Nicole wants to beat up Rena, but she wants backup there just in case. Kelly, who is Nicole's ride or die, is in with little questions asked. The plan is to gather all of their friends at Shoreline Middle School to have a party. While that is a regular spot for after-hours parties, that night was particularly special. There was a Russian satellite breaking apart in space, and it was visible in the night sky. While at the party, after some drinks and fun, they were going to lure Rena away and kick her ass, humiliating her in front of everyone who matters. Not long after Rena left her parents, she arrives at the Walmart and meets up with Nicole and Missy. They take the bus toward View Royal and meet their other friends at Shoreline Middle School. There's already about 20 people there that Friday night. All of the kids are broken into their little groups, drinking and laughing. The party ends up getting a little bit out of control as the alcohol flows, and someone ends up throwing a rock into the school window, and that's when police show up. The kids decide to change locations. Nicole, Missy, Kelly, and Rena leave together to go to Mac's convenience store. Rena is pressured by the other girl to buy cigarettes for Nicole. Shortly after buying the cigarettes, Rena walks outside to see other kids have arrived in the area, and she overhears Kelly telling another girl that she intends to beat someone up that night. Rena has serious concerns that she is that someone that Kelly is talking about, so she runs to the payphone, calls her family, and intends to leave. It's around 9 p.m. when she speaks to her little brother and tells him she's on her way home. As Rena waits for the next bus to go back to Saanich, Nicole and Missy each take one of Rena's arms and start navigating her down to the Craigflower Bridge. As they arrive under the bridge, Rena sees that there is a huge group already gathered there, roughly 16 kids, mainly girls. It's then she realizes that she made a huge mistake coming out that night. She knows why she's been lured there. They're going to beat her up for talking about Nicole. I do want to point out that half of these kids claim to associate with a gang or a wannabe gang. The culture of Crips and Bloods may have origins in another country, but like many teens in the U.S., the kids fancied themselves badasses and believed that they would be accepted into those gangs. Even Rena was fixated on gang culture. Usually, these kids were full of empty threats while wearing blue or red and penning fake tattoos on their arms to identify with their gang of choice, but today, those threats had a flicker of truth. Tonight would be the night they proved themselves with violence. Nicole is the first one to make a move. She starts to berate Rena, screaming at her that she knows she's been spreading rumors. She lifts her hand, the one holding a lit cigarette, a cigarette purchased by Rena, and puts it out on Rena's forehead. Rena screams and pushes Nicole backwards and makes to grab her stuff to run away, but that's when other people step in. Six girls quickly move forward to trap Rena from escaping. Now it's a pack mentality. These kids are hyped up on booze, pot, cigarettes. They're amped on the angry words flying out of Nicole's mouth. Soon, Missy hits Rena, then Kelly, now a boy that doesn't even know Rena, Warren Glowatsky. There are eight to ten witnesses gathered around and watching as eight kids aged 14 to 16 throw punch after punch, kick after kick at 14-year-old Rena. 
She's stomped on, slapped. As she falls to the ground, crying out in pain, kids kick her in the head and face. Some of the bystanders leave. Only two suggest that people should stop the beating. One boy and one girl. That girl happened to have been punching Rena earlier and realized how serious the beating had become. Most of the kids leave after, but not Kelly and not Nicole. While Kelly continues to punch Rena, Nicole rummages through her stuff and pulls out matches. She attempts to light Rena's hair on fire, something that Nicole and Kelly have done to someone in the past. Finally, Nicole has had enough. Her and Missy leave so that they can get back to their group home before curfew. The few kids loitering around waiting for rides or for the next bus note that they see Rena stumbling along, slowly making her way across the bridge towards the bus stop. She doesn't bother with her stuff. Kelly has dumped it out everywhere. Rena has other concerns. She's bleeding and swollen, and some of the witnesses say she's whimpering and crying as she tries to walk away. One boy watching her from the other side of the bridge notices when Kelly and Warren start walking toward Rena. Most of the kids left assuming it was over, but it's not. Warren Glowatsky claims that he watched Rena walk away and Kelly Ellard turned to look at him and in her eyes there was a look that was easy to understand. She wasn't done with Rena. Warren joined Kelly and they approached Rena and told her they would help her get home, but instead they led her back under the bridge. Kelly demands that Rena take off her shoes and then her jacket, all while screaming at her for the same things Nicole had earlier. She punches her over and over and over. Eventually, Warren joins in and they take turns jumping on her chest and face while she lays helpless on the ground. Kelly then drags Rena over to a tree and smashes her face into the trunk. This is when Rena finally loses consciousness. You would think the two would be done and walk away, but no. They drag her down to the water, and as they do so, her pants and underwear slowly get pulled off. They then stop to make fun of her body before putting her in the water. As the salt water enters her wounds, Rena awakes and Kelly hits her in the throat, crushes her windpipe, and holds her underwater for several minutes. Finally, when it's obvious Rena has stopped breathing and is dead, they leave her there and go home. The next day, while Rena's family calls first thing in the morning to check every location that Rena could possibly be, including talking on the phone with Nicole, Nicole takes Missy with her to ensure that the crime scene has no trace of them. They find Rena's shoes and take them home with them. The jacket is now gone, picked up by some stranger. Her diary is ripped up and thrown into the water. The perfume bottle, the one expensive thing Rena owned, was smashed onto the ground. Warren, who was now at his girlfriend Sarita's house, was avoiding talking about what happened. The only person he ever spoke to about that night was Kelly. The guilt was already eating him up, and he knew he needed to distance himself from it. He asked Sarita to wash his clothes from the night before. Even though she wasn't there that night, she heard the rumors about a girl that was beat up, and she was starting to wonder if Warren had something to do with it. There on the pant leg of his white jeans that he had asked her to wash was blood. She bleached the pants. The murder of Jacqueline DeWallaby is a tragedy that has puzzled and polarized the minds of those who know it. Over the past six months, we've extensively investigated this case, trawling through files, trial transcripts, and archives, 
and have been conducting interviews with the people who lived through it. It was a sensational, startling fact that a seven-year-old little girl had shown up missing from a suburban home. Something like that happening would have never crossed our parents' minds. The notion that a stranger can slip into a child's bedroom in the middle of the night, completely undetected, is surely a notion that every single parent on this earth fears. But what's even more lamentable is knowing that a child killer is roaming the street, and even more chilling, they could be someone you know. Hosted by Emily G. Thompson and Eileen McFarlane, this is The Shattered Window. Kelly wasn't feeling the guilt that Warren was feeling. She was proud of herself. She began to tell anyone who would listen about how she killed a girl by karate chopping her in the throat. When her friend Chandelle didn't believe her, she took her down to the tree where she smashed Rena's face, hoping there would still be blood to help convince her friend that it was true. Days go by and most of the kids at Shoreline Middle School have heard the tale of Rena and that she's dead somewhere in the water, yet police don't know this. Not until two sisters, both in foster care, feel it's their duty to tell police what they've heard. On November 19th, five days after Rena's murder, the two girls go to Oak Bay Police and tell them what they've heard from Missy and Nicole. Their story is detailed, and the police start to take them seriously and decide to search for evidence of Rena down by the water. Finally, after searching the shoreline for two days, the discovery of Rena's body is made on November 21st. Eight kids were held responsible for what happened to Rena Verk. Warren Glowatsky, Kelly Ellard, and six girls known in the media as the Shoreline Six as they all attended Shoreline Middle School. Warren and Kelly were broadcasted for the world to see as they were going to be tried as adults for the murder of Rena. The other six, however, were shielded by Canada's Youth Criminal Justice Act. In later years, we learn the true identity of most of the girls. Nicole Cook, Missy Grace Pleisch, Nicole Patterson, Courtney Keith, Gail Ooms, and there was one other girl whose name has not been released, and she was identified as C.A.K. In February 1998, the Shoreline Six were convicted of causing bodily harm for their roles in the attack on Rena prior to her death. The trial required that the witnesses who watched the beating of Rena Vert take the stand and talk about what they saw. As you can imagine, there were many tears. But what people finally got to see was the reality for so many teens. Binge drinking, drugs, and watching as someone their own age is ganged up on and beaten within an inch of her life. It was illuminating. Rena's family sat in court and somehow managed to get through testimony from witness after witness describing in detail the abuse of their daughter. Most of the Shoreline Six received one year in jail with credit for time served and an additional year probation. One of the girls had a very troubled past and had PTSD from witnessing her father get murdered by her mother and her boyfriend when she was six years old. Because of that trauma, she had significant mental illness and was a major suicide risk. She was deemed unsuitable for jail life and instead received treatment outside of jail. 
The leniency given to Nicole was heavily criticized by Rena's family. The entire situation occurred because of her desire to teach Rena a lesson. She's the one that hatched the entire plan. Not only that, she has a history of violence. Nicole, Missy, Gail, and C.A.K. had all beaten up a girl before, and none of them got jail time. In that case, they had lured the girl to a secluded area, beat her up, and set her hair on fire. Luckily, she survived after a lengthy hospital stay. Warren Glowatsky and Kelly Ellard were tried as adults. They were found to be the primary culprits in the murder of Rena Vert. Warren, much like the Shoreline Six, had a tenuous childhood. His father left him to be raised with his alcoholic mother in a trailer while he moved away to the U.S. and married a wealthy widow. Warren spent much of his time couch surfing from friend's house to friend's house, and when he finally found one where he felt cared for, he had to leave. It suggested that years of being set aside, abandoned, and uncared for grew a silent rage inside the young boy. He said on more than one occasion that he didn't know why he beat up Rena. He not only had no reason to hit her, he didn't even know her. So why did his body just take over and join in with the brutal beating? He doesn't know. All he knows is that he is incredibly regretful. When Warren first went to trial, he refused to speak against his friend Kelly. His legal team did what they could for him, but he was convicted of second-degree murder in 1999. He was given a life sentence, but since he was 16 at the time, he would be eligible for parole in seven years. To his credit, Warren admitted very early on that he took part in Rena's death. He lied initially, as I think any child would do, but he eventually came clean. He just didn't want to snitch on Kelly because he feared that other inmates would hurt him for placing the blame on another person. He was initially up for day parole in 2004, but it was denied. In 2006, after nearly nine years in jail, he was approved for day parole, which allowed him to slowly be reintroduced to society. By 2010, Warren Glowatsky had spent 11 years in prison and was now up for full parole. Some might find this hard to believe, but throughout all of his parole hearings, Manjeet and Suman Virk didn't oppose him, and they even attended some of the meetings. Over the years, they had visited Warren in prison. He accepted what he did to Rena and apologized to the Virks. They were not only forgiving, but ultimately supportive of Warren. They mentioned that they were grateful for his apology and acceptance, and they hoped that he would move on in his life with a way that embraces everything that he learned. Talk about graciousness. They spoke on his behalf at the parole hearing, suggesting that they had no issue with him being granted parole. He had taken responsibility, learned from the situation, and believed that he could contribute to society. They were strong believers in restorative justice and thought that if someone admitted to their crime and wanted to do better, they could with support. Warren didn't stop with empty words. He proved time and time again that he truly learned from the experience. While in prison, he found out about his Métis heritage, the Aboriginal people of Canada. He began incorporating his elders into his healing process and his restorative justice. He took several rehabilitation courses in prison and speaks as a mentor to young people at risk. After all, if anyone can get through to kids committing crimes, it's one that had lived that life. Warren recognizes that he didn't just wake up one day wanting to be a better person. He knows how lucky he was to be placed in an institution that made his care a priority. It wasn't just jail. It was an environment that was safe, educational, and supportive. 
Warren Glowatsky was released on parole on June 23, 2010. Kelly Ellard's experience with the legal system was much more different than Warren's. Rather than accept punishment for her part in the crime and do her time quietly, her legal team went to battle. Kelly had a new nickname in the media, too, Killer Kelly, a very fitting title. Media had a field day with her. I think it's likely because she's so typical looking, just a late 90s white girl. It's so shocking to imagine that someone that looked like that could do something so gruesome to another girl her own age. But looking back on her photos, I definitely see something behind her eyes. While her family often spoke of her as a caring kid who loved old people and animals, those that interacted with her and knew her had a very different experience. Kelly, like all of the kids involved, did come from a broken home. However, she at least lived at home with her remarried mother and the perks of a middle-class lifestyle. Despite this, she still acted out, did drugs, and was incredibly violent. Her school guidance counselor described how she just liked to, quote, punch people. Eventually, Kelly is diagnosed with a moderate to severe conduct disorder as well as a substance abuse problem. Interviewing Kelly proves to be an interesting feat for the police. She plays dumb, avoids questions, and laughs at inappropriate times. It isn't long before she starts blaming others for Rena's death. She claims to have had nothing to do with it. She mainly points at her friend Nicole. But this doesn't line up with all of the information the other kids are bringing to the table. Police are certain that Kelly has taken the largest role in the killing, and they arrest her for murder. Before her trial even began, her legal team was advocating to have her trial set in youth court, but the Supreme Court refused and it continued in adult court. Her first trial kicks off in March of 2000, over two years after the murder of Rena. During the time the trial was set, she was allowed to live at home with her family, albeit with strict caveats. Ellard's legal team presents her as the target of an elaborate conspiracy among her friends, that they all did it and then pinned it on a single person, Kelly. Prosecution says this is not the case, and Kelly is the most violent and aggressive person in the group. And within a month, Kelly is convicted of second-degree murder. Her sentence is similar to Warren's. She'll be expected to be in jail for at least five years before she can apply for parole. Since she's younger than 18 when the murder happened, she doesn't have to wait the mandatory 10 years that you normally do as an adult. By February of 2003, Ellard wins a new trial. Her legal team appealed, saying that she was inappropriately questioned and didn't receive a fair trial, and witnesses gave false testimony against her. I'm not really sure how they argued that, but they won. She's then given bail and allowed to await for a new trial at home. However, it gets revoked within a month because she's arrested for assaulting a 58-year-old woman in a park. Her second trial begins the summer of 2004. Multiple witnesses come forward to discuss that Kelly herself admitted to them that she murdered Rena. The witness that garners the most attention is Warren Glowatsky. He's no longer afraid to testify against Kelly, and he tells the court how he watched Kelly hold Rena underwater for five minutes. What seems like a strong case ends up being deadlocked when the jurors cannot agree on guilt. The trial ends and a new one is set. Kelly's third and final trial begins February of 2005, eight years after Rena's death. The same key witnesses are gathered to testify against Kelly. After six days of deliberation, this time the jury finds her guilty of second-degree murder. 
She, of course, appealed, but the Supreme Court upheld this verdict in 2009. Kelly was eligible for parole several times, but as she never expressed her guilt for the murder, she was denied. It wasn't until 2016 that Kelly admitted she had anything to do with the murder. 19 years after Rena's death, Kelly accepted that it was because of her that Rena was gone. But of course, even then she downplayed it, saying that she merely pushed her into the water and left her there to die. She didn't hold her under, but merely left an unconscious girl to drown. She didn't give the truth. She didn't offer an apology, but she did recognize that she took a young girl from her family. Though she was denied parole multiple times, Kelly was granted conjugal visits with her much older and felonious boyfriend. This resulted in their first child together. With her admission of guilt and improved behavior, things were looking up for Kelly. So when she applied for day parole again in November 2017, it was granted. While on day parole, she had her second child with the same man. Oh, God. The parole board noted that having a child had been a positive effect on her and she was definitely more mature. Still, even with that positive change, they didn't grant her request of five days in the community and two days at a halfway house. Instead, they offered her four days in the community and three days in a residential facility. This freedom, of course, is dependent on her following the rules, which means no alcohol, no drugs, no crime or association with someone who does crime, continued treatment, and she's not allowed to contact the Virk family. The latest information came this year is that she had that day parole extended so she can continue to be a mom to her two children and support her family with a job in the community. So part-time jail, part-time life. Kelly Marie Ellard now goes by Carrie Marie Sim. Her boyfriend, the father of her children, did end up going back to jail for armed robbery. And Kelly, or Carrie, has had a few drug relapses in past years. But I think we'll see more to come from her because she's in the news very often. To honor Rena's memory, the Virk family heavily supported anti-bullying campaigns across Canada. They repeatedly found themselves in the spotlight, channeling their pain over the loss of their child so that they could speak out against bullying and violence. They spoke to teachers, students, law enforcement, hoping that generating conversation around this growing problem would stop some families from losing their children. In 2009, the Virk family was given British Columbia's Anthony J. Holmey Award for distinction for their efforts. The Virks also supported politicians in their pursuit for justice reform. While they did believe in restorative justice as it worked for Warren, they also believed in holding young offenders who were repeat or violent offenders until they got to trial, not letting them live at home like Kelly did. They support better mental health treatment for those same offenders. They truly just want a safer world for every young person. Unfortunately, tragedy for the Virk family didn't end with the loss of Rena. Rena's mother, Suman Virk, would die in a fluke accident. At 58 years old, Suman choked while eating out at a cafe in Victoria. Her airway was blocked for several minutes and she couldn't be revived. The story of Rena Verk is equal parts horrific, haunting, and inspiring. The unimaginable pain and loss did force people to take a hard look at what's happening with teenagers all over the world. Rena's murder inspired many to share her story with all of their audiences. Soraya Pierbay published a series of poems dedicated to Rena called Tell Poems for Girlhood, 
Rebecca Godfrey wrote her award-winning book, Under the Bridge, that I read for today's case. Joan McLeod wrote a beautiful and tragic play called The Shape of a Girl. All of these stories want to remember Rena, and they want to convey that bullying isn't just a childhood rite of passage that we all should have to endure. We shouldn't wait for things to get better. It's a pandemic that everyone should take part in eradicating. If you're interested in learning more about anti-bullying measures or resources, please visit stopbullying.gov. All right, go. What are your thoughts? I'm glad some good came up from it that the family was able to uh the family was able to turn it into something good where it's an educational moment about not only that your own child could be in danger, but your own child could be doing these things. So yeah, it's I'm very glad much some like good came from it. I'm the victim. I'm the perpetrator. I'm the victim. It's like you can be a victim and still be doing it yeah. to other kids. Yeah. Um, and it just <laughs> for some reason for Kelly in you talking about this today, even though we hear about it so often where the cases get dragged out and dragged out and dragged out. That one's just shocking. There's though. something about her, her. I don't know if it's that she's a young woman or that it's, you know, her family would have had to have been involved. But the fact that you would just drag it out, like what kind of balls do you have? You have if a you've family you've connected done something. To, to money. Yeah. I, and there was rumors that her family was into some bad stuff, too. But like the other kids that don't have family or mm-hmm. don't have money, they were in jail like within yeah. a month. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about just the nerve mm-hmm. to know that you did that. And to and, not admit it. And I'm sure family was in denial, like our our baby could never do that to someone kind of a thing maybe. But to just let that drag on, to to not only be so cold in that moment to commit that, but then to continue to do that to the family I think and to the court system. I think she's got issues. They mentioned, I think, in her second trial, the entire time she spoke with a British accent, mm. like a, a, a contrived, right. trying well, to be she, like poised. Well, and it sounds like you'd said there, there was like a personality thing, behavior, mental thing. Conduct. Like, she couldn't control herself. Definitely some ODD going on, oppositional defiance disorder, like big time. Uh, but yeah, just that for anyone where it's, I mean, just admit that you've done something wrong and then let's figure out how to punish. Agreed. I found it really interesting, though, that every child in this story comes from some sort of broken home. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how prevalent it is in that area, but it's just kind of interesting. Like, yes, of course, if you have one parent who's working, you probably do have more time to do things that go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. It's just kind of weird that they all ended up in this little. I mean, that sounded like most of my student i mean i think a lot of people think mental health comes from something you're born with or you have a trauma but they're kind of separate and and present in different ways i can't tell you how many kids i've had through the years that found a parent from suicide or watched a murder of another parent or of anyone i mean just yeah oh so many kids so many kids so many kids through the years that that's where the trauma and therefore the mental health comes from. Right. They get like personality disorders. Then, like yeah. this, I was reading that it says a typical bully has a tendency to be narcissistic mm-hmm. or aggressive. I mean, that's kind of obvious. But then you kind of think about Rena. I don't think she was narcissistic. She was just so desperate for recognition mm-hmm. that it just like forced her into this pretend role. And mm-hmm. then she just went with it. Well, and it's a lot of... You know, as we've all talked through the years of just 
you pick on someone less than you. So it's really like a self-hatred that the, you're reflecting on to make yourself person. feel bigger. Yeah. And so, yeah, maybe she's running her mouth because she's mad at her life and she's running it yeah. on this one person and it just was the wrong person. Well, and Rebecca Godfrey wrote about how Rena thought that was the only way she could get attention from someone mm-hmm. like Nicole was, okay, I have to be the biggest, baddest bitch. Right. For her to think I'm cool enough to hang with. And mm-hmm. she, I don't think she was out to attack Nicole's character, but more to like, like, look what impress I her. Mm-hmm. Like, I can be a mean girl. Yeah. Like, look at me. I can roast you a little bit mm-hmm. and not scared of you. Mm-hmm. So something else I read that I found so interesting. A woman by the name of Lisa Garby studied a group of people who identified themselves as bullies mm-hmm. at some point in their life. And they found that 60% of middle school bullies will have at least one criminal conviction by the age of 24. Mm. And this case super outlines that. Mm -hmm. A lot of these, I mean, one girl ended up dying from a rare heart disorder. A lot of them you can find on Facebook and they're not pleasant people. They say mean things. They're kind of bullying, cyberbullying now. Well, yeah, and you go back and it's, well, where did that come from? Okay, and it's like everything else we connect. It's poverty, it's education, it's accessibility to resources socioeconomic status has a play in every little detail so it's not surprising these kids would all be in the same area they maybe all know each other through foster care i mean you get you get kids that are in a classroom especially at the facilities you're talking about all these and they're all in half they're Mm -hmm. all in uh, foster homes together and they all know each other and we've had kids that they they're okay at school and then go home and we have to call the foster and be like, Hey, they were like talking some stuff, like just keep an eye on them and vice versa. Hey, they were okay this morning, but they were acting like something might go down at school. And so you're constantly surrounded by these people that you are forced to be a pseudo family with that you don't want to be around Mm because it's not your family and your brain is developing that dominoes, you know, I don't know if it was your writing or just my expectations (laughs) that I really thought Wade would flip. I really was like Warren or I'm sorry. Yeah, that Warren would flip that the the family would be so invested in like we accept his forgiveness. Oh, and, and I'm like, oh, God, it's a bad. long con the whole no, time. No, I feel like, like so what's interesting in this book under the bridge that I highly recommend anybody read who's interested in this case. She what she does is she presents these kids as normal kids and talks about the good and the bad about them. Mm-hmm. Like Warren was typically a nice guy. Everyone called him little Warren G. All the girls loved him. He was baby faced and tiny. And he had this wonderful girl girlfriend, Sarita, who was a nice girl. Mm-hmm. And they were on the outside of the clique, but they weren't like part of that group. And that was the first time he ever did anything bad. Right. Like he had everything against him that he could have been a bad kid. And that it just blew up he like dipped his toe in it and it and it ruined his life Mm -hmm. and i think you know that opened his eyes but had he not had sarita maybe that wouldn't be the case Mm because she kept in contact with him and loved him very much Mm -hmm. so well and it's good to hear that in canada they have treatment and you do and i wanted to talk about that have conjugal visits yeah i don't like that i think for them they're like let's uh, be as normal as possible and slowly get these people jobs right. and doing these things. So I get it. But yeah, I'm not, I don't believe in conjugal visits. I think it's that's, a bad that's idea. A, that's a perk of so freedom. Make it, and make them get married though. Like why are they just letting this guy who's a felon come in and visit his girlfriend? I find right. it very odd. Right. <laughs> or like here's the condoms or yeah. something. I don't know. I got to read more about it. Cause I was, when I read that, I was knocked over like, yeah i just thought that was so crazy and just oh yeah sure have it's like okay guys leniency is one thing and and not institutionalizing people especially when they go into the system so young yeah it's nice that they're trying to let them maintain some sense of normalcy but maybe not that much agreed 
so, so often you hear words, they were a happy kid and then it just happened quick or the parents just don't know. So it's certainly not any kind of this falls on the parents. It's no. just more you have to be so vigilant even yeah. when you think talk about things it are better all the time even things here you don't look, want she, to talk about exactly like she ended up back home with the family and they're trying to mend it so you you can't yeah. just take with with what's presented right in front of you you have to dig a little bit more to, oh, to the, see all the aspects the horrible you know? thing too is the parents were like on to the friends not mm-hmm. being a good situation but what can you do other than embarrass them by going and forcing them to get in the car and then being a laughing stock right you know it's a very delicate balance of protecting your child and not sabotaging them right but also then i guess you're the laughing stock yeah i'm saying i'd rather your you're alive and you know maybe only have one friend than you're not here and hate me and then you'll be older and then you won't and yeah um, so I did have a couple of bullying facts that you probably are really familiar with, but I found really interesting. Boys typically bully based on physical weakness and clothing. Girls tend to do it on attractiveness, emotions, and academic status. Both genders bully those with speech impediments more often than others. And of course, those with disabilities or lower socioeconomic backgrounds uh, get bullied more than other kids. And then this one really threw me. The same year that Rena was killed in 1997, there was a study done in Seattle where students were asked to record their peers' language in the hallways and in the classrooms. And they were asked to note every time someone made a comment that was considered anti-gay. And at the end of the study, they found out that a typical student hears an anti-gay comment 25 times per day. So the two books I read for this case, which I highly recommend, the first is Under the Bridge by Rebecca Godfrey. She has a really unique perspective because she's actually a young adult fiction writer. But this case really took her because she's from the area. So she thought, I want to write about this and tell Rena's story. So she sent a copy of her young adult book to all of the kids in the case because they didn't want to talk to media. And she was trying to prove, hey, I'm not a typical investigation author, like, I want to write a story. It's going to be good and bad. I want to know you. And they accepted her and told her their story. So it's really well written. Um, It reads like a young adult book. So I highly suggest you pick it up. If you're more of a I want the details and don't want to spend time getting to know the kids as well, there is a book called Kids Who Kill, Kelly Ellard and Warren Glowatsky, written by Catherine McMaster. It's a very quick read around 110 pages, but it gets right into the case so you can read about the kind of what happened in court, what happened in the case and a little bit about her family background. So highly recommend both those books. And you can find more information about the books we read for our stories at murderintherain.com. And at the top, there's a little tab for murder reads. Murder reads. Thank you and good night. Perhaps it's caught. These are good. All right, steady. Get back in there now. Push. Get back in there. Don't let her know you're afraid. Damn, this is ASMR. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm getting very excited. (laughs) My God. Did I say that right? Yeah. Okay. Fuck. What, here? Ostracized. Yeah, I mean, you did. You did. Ostracized. Ostracized, yeah. Ostracized. Don't do that. I'm so sorry. In fourth grade, I wanted to swear so bad, I would run a cycle of swears in my head, like, nearly constantly. (laughs) Fuck shit ass bitch. Fuck shit ass bitch. I just wanted to swear so bad. Wow. I've never said that out loud to anybody.
That's crazy. I, I mean, it's not. Like, I someday get it. I'm going to do it. And then I got bullied. You were fixing On topic. Mm-hmm. I got bullied and I yelled, that motherfucker. Have, have some egg salad and sit down. I may have done that with like a Tylenol once or like a Advil or something. You know, some <laughs> get sort it of... in my head. But I was older, you know. <laughs> I knew better. <laughs> I was making adult decisions. <laughs> but ultimately supportive of what? It's impossible to move my lips. Okay, I'm, I'm ready. Oh, okay. They were not only... Suf- no, I guess I'm not. <laughs> guess I'm not ready. Yes. Uh, Aboriginal people... <laughs> it's something we... Fuck me. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 